It's so good to see you tonight and to be again able to come and uh, speak from the Word of God to God's people and through the Word to be encouraged in our pilgrimage here below. I'd like us to open our Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 tonight, and we're going to title our study, The Value of Christian Suffering. The Apostle Paul historically wrote this epistle shortly after he wrote the first one. You know, as we study Acts chapter 17, Paul and Silas and Timothy coming to Thessalonica, uh, we find that there was a great deal of opposition to their teaching, to their gospel. And uh, they would pursue the members of the early church at Thessalonica and threaten them. And and we, we only know uh, uh, from historical sketches that many of the Christians in the first century suffered the loss of jobs and property and uh, prestige and position in communities and there was a great cost involved in becoming a Christian and we just see a glimpse of that in Acts chapter 17 and we find because of the opposition in Thessalonica Paul and his companions were were driven out to Berea which was not too far from Thessalonica and And the people that stirred up the folks at Thessalonica followed him to Berea. And and it was a dangerous time in the life of the Apostle Paul. Nothing that he was not accustomed to. But then we read where Paul would leave Berea and go to Athens. And uh, we read a little bit about his ministry there. But there was no church planted in Athens. That's interesting to me. But then in uh, chapter 18, we find that the Apostle Paul was commanded to go to Corinth. And and there he was really afraid because the Lord came to him at, in night and, 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 and said, Paul, don't be afraid because I have much people in this city and no hand shall uh, bring harm to you. That was God's promise to him. And we read where he stayed there for a period of 18 months. While he was at Corinth, he received word from Timothy and Silas about the condition of the church at Thessalonica. And he, from there, was able to write that first epistle uh, relatively quickly after he had left their company. And then uh, Timothy and, and Silas would be going back to Thessalonica in ministry and and establishing the church there, and they'd bring report back to the Apostle Paul. And Paul uh, heard the report that they were suffering extreme uh, persecution. And some of them were even discouraged. And some were even uh, uh, defaulting and going back into uh, pagan uh, ways. There, There seemed to be a lot of misunderstanding. Because in this early church, they they were not yet grounded in the full scope of the gospel. Now, they were grounded in the basic elements of Christianity, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But there was so much misunderstanding about the second coming of Christ and about 
the role of tribulation and suffering that they were called to endure. So the Apostle Paul is going to write this short letter to encourage them in the midst of their suffering not to give way to fear and not to give way to doubt, but to stand firm, to stand fast in the truth of Jesus Christ because that's where the victory is. Many of us have read or heard the story of one of the most famous martyrs of the second century, whose name was Polycarp. And Polycarp came to be the bishop of the church at Smyrna. One of the letters that we studied about in the book of Revelation was written to Smyrna. And, uh, and what's interesting is the church at Smyrna didn't have any uh, condemnation. They had only commendation because they were willing to suffer for the name of Christ. And Polycarp and Ignatius were early servants in the church at Smyrna. And Polycarp was baptized by the Apostle John. In the story that unfolded in the life of Polycarp, his martyrdom was not only found in Christian literature and Christian letters at the time, but also Roman letters because they were so amazed that a man 86 years old would not deny Christ and live, but chose rather to be burned at the stake. And the thought that I want to capture from that lengthy story that's well documented uh, was when he was challenged in the arena at Smyrna to swear by the genius of Lord Caesar. He said, Sir, let me be plain. I am a Christian, and my Lord is not Caesar, but Jesus Christ. And, of course, this, they, they burn him at the stake. You know, that's a very real epic, a very descriptive uh, illustration of what many of the first and second and third century Christians went through. Well, Thessalonica was right in the midst of that fire. They were right in the midst of that kind of thinking, not only from the Roman government, but also from the Jewish opponents that were in these cities. And this letter is written to encourage them and us in our journey of Christian suffering <clears throat> because there's an intrinsic value to it. Now let's read this chapter quickly and then we'll come back for comment. Paul and Silvanus, remember Silvanus is, is another name for Silas. Paul and Silas, or Silvanus and Timotheus, unto the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth, so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. 
which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which ye also suffer. Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you, and to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how many times he's using the word Lord. Because that was one of the points of contention, of persecution. They wouldn't swear lordship to Caesar. Hmm. But he says... Who shall be punished, these evildoers, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony was uh, among you was believed in that day. Wherefore, also we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this, catch this, calling. Of this calling. And fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, I believe there's an emphasis on the lordship of Christ for a reason. This was one of the issues that they were dealing with in the first and second and part of the third centuries. Who is the Lord? And why, if Jesus Christ is true to the Lord, why do those who follow him called to suffer? Now, that's the great question tonight. I want to examine three reasons three benefits, three areas of value that we find in this, in this chapter concerning Christian suffering. We're going to see that suffering brings growth. We're going to see that suffering is actually a gift that is preparing us for future glory and that suffering always precedes glory. Now, Let's think about this in this context. <clears throat> in verses, uh, and by the way, uh, there's a tr there, there's a there's a uh, another little hidden value to this chapter. You're going to find three twin references uh, hidden in this chapter concerning faith, and uh, and and to me, it, it's it's powerful. Uh, we're, we're going to see the significance of faith and love, the significance of faith and perseverance, and the significance of faith and power. And this is going to bring encouragement to the hearts of these suffering people over in Thessalonica, and I hope you and I here tonight. When we think about suffering in its uh, design, uh, suffering in its purpose, it is always intended by God to bring growth. Growth 
in the words of Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, growth in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in verse 3, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet or fitting, because that your faith is growing exceedingly, and the charity or the love, the love that extends from that faith, because faith worketh by love, to every one of you all toward each other abounds. Notice there's, there's a, this is a superlative. Uh, it is superabounding. It's something that is not only witnessed within the confines of your fellowship, but it's also being witnessed by those on the outside of your fellowship. There is a need for growth during times of persecution, during times of, of uh, suffering. Now, at this juncture, I want us to go to a reference in 1 Peter chapter 4, very quickly, because I believe Peter expands that thought. What does it mean, Peter, to be growing in this faith and growing in this love, especially during times of suffering and intense persecution? Peter uh, really nails it here in chapter 4 of 1 Peter and I want you to notice with me verse tw verses 12 uh, all the way down to 19. Peter says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning... Notice, notice his reference. Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial. Now what you need to understand is, in a Roman context, this is significant. Because the gladiatorial arenas of Rome had been shut down. They'd already been shut down. The arenas were still there, but they didn't do the gladiator uh, combat anymore at this point in time. So what they would do when there was an enemy of the state or an enemy of Caesar or even captured enemies in battle, they'd bring them to those arenas and put stakes up and burn them with fire. And it's interesting to me that the Apostle Peter three times in 1 Peter, refers to the fiery trial. He's talking about being burned at the stake. So he says, Beloved, don't think it's a strange thing that we're burned at the stake, this fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened unto you, but rejoice. Look at this. Rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye then be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. Do you see his uh, excitement here? Happy are ye, for the spirit of the glory of God rests upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if you suffer, if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end of them that obey not the gospel of God be? Uh, and if the righteousness, uh, if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the uh, ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer 
according to the will of God, commit the keeping of their souls to Him in well-doing as unto a faithful Creator. See, see, the Apostle Peter understood the same things that the Apostle Paul understood. That uh, actually it's worded in Acts chapter 5 verse 41 that God would, they rejoice that God would count them worthy to suffer for his namesake. I like the, I like the song we sing, When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. See, there's an intrinsic value to suffering as a Christian. And the Apostle Paul is really laying it out there. He's saying, never be ashamed of that. Never be ashamed of suffering for the truth. Never be ashamed of that. He says, I'm, I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful that you're abounding. This was an, actually an answer to the prayer of the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. This was his prayer for them, that they would, they would abound, that they would grow, and that they would nurture that kind of faith and steadfast resolve in their Christian lives and witness. Verse 4, So that we ourselves glory in you and the churches of God for your patience and faith. He's bringing the word patience there. Now, when we read in our English Bible the word patience, we're thinking about, well, uh, a time of waiting. You know, we need patience. We, 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 we don't need to get in hurry. We need patience. And all of us pray for patience. But, but that's really not, that's, that's not the definition of this term, patience, from the Greek term hupomene, to persevere. Hupomene, to bear up under pressure, under hupo under pressure to bear up under pressure that's the word translated patience now somebody says well brother jeff i i need some i, I need some of that i i need some of that uh, uh patience well you need to pray for it but you better be aware that when you're praying for patience you're actually praying for more tribulation according to romans chapter 5 verses 1 through 3 that's right uh, the Apostle Paul said in that wonderful uh, treatise there that uh, tribulation is what produces patience. And patience is what produces hope. And hope makes not ashamed because of the love of God shed abroad in our hearts abundantly by the Holy Spirit that is given unto us. So the Apostle Paul is telling us the true value of Christian suffering, it's going to build, it's going to grow our faith and grow our love and, and grow our resolve to stand fast and to bear up under whatever pressures or tribulations come our way. He says, I'm, I'm thanking God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. Did not Jesus say that? Did not Jesus say that those who suffered for the name of Christ were blessed. Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. Blessed are ye when uh, men shall persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Great is your reward in heaven. 
Isn't that wonderful to think about? Isn't it wonderful to think about how um, God designed our sufferings to be intentional? Remember the conversation Paul had in the second Corinthian letter in chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. Remember how he, he said that he had a thorn in the flesh? You know, he was just a human, just like you and me. He says, I've got a thorn in the flesh. Uh, you know, it might be somebody you have to work with. It might be somebody in the church. It might be somebody that God providentially brought into your life. You know, some of those rascals steal your ladder and you saw horses. And I mean, you know, but God uses that to humble one another. No, brothers and sisters, uh, I, I'm, I'm thankful to know that Paul was just a human. We, we like to think of the apostles as some kind of superheroes or super Christian, you know, people. But they were ordinary men. They were ordinary folks just like you and me. But God used them in an extraordinary way. And Paul says, yeah, I, uh, I, I was given a thorn in the flesh. Satan to buffet me. To buffet means to beat, to hit. And I asked God three times. This is the great apostle Paul. I asked God three times to deliver me from that thorn. And every time he said the same thing. My grace is sufficient for thee. And my strength, listen, and my strength is made perfect in your weakness. How did it affect Paul? He says, therefore will I rather glory in my infirmity. I'll glory in my weakness. If Christ is more powerful and more evident in my life through my suffering, let me have more of it. That was his attitude. Because what happened in his life and in yours is when we suffer for the truth's sake, we grow in our faith. We grow in our love. We grow in our perseverance. And later we'll learn in this chapter we're studying tonight, we'll grow in power, ability. We'll grow in effectiveness. Now, let's consider that. My grace is sufficient for thee, and my strength is made perfect in, in, in weakness. I, I, I think about this in the context of 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, where the eyes of the Lord are going to and fro throughout all the earth, to show himself strong in behalf of those whose hearts are made perfect toward him. Those whose hearts truly are serving God. Now, I don't believe that any of us ever serve God perfectly. I don't believe that any of us ever serve God uh, sinlessly. Uh, that's one of the reasons we're looking forward to being in heaven, isn't it? For the first time, we'll be able to worship him that way. But praise his holy name. He ministers grace in the midst of our weakness. He ministers his love in the midst of our doubts and fears. He ministers to us all the while we're suffering. And Paul wants to remind us of that. He says, going back to our letter in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse uh, 5, he says, which is a manifest token, this suffering that you're enduring is, and, and the faith that 
that is growing in you and the love and the perseverance that is growing in you is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer. Now, don't think that that worthiness is based upon merit. Don't, don't, don't think... Um, don't think that our willingness to suffer for the name of Christ is what uh, earns us heaven or obligates God to let us enter in to the kingdom of heaven. That's not what he's saying at all. See, because the worthiness here is speaking of fitness, not of merit, with our lives consistent with our identity as true Christians like Polycarp. He, even to the point of death, he identified himself as a Christian, a Christ follower. I think it's important for us to remember that our suffering is often what brings about true growth in our love, in our faith, in our love, in our perseverance, and in our power. The second point we want to uh, understand begins in verse 6, verses 6 through 10. Listen to what he says. Seeing, or that, that term is, is, is saying this is an obvious thing. This is something that you can see clearly. Seeing that it is a righteous thing with God to recompense. To recompense. The word there comes from a Greek word that means to uh, uh, to imply full punishment, to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. Now, he, here he's separating the believer from the unbeliever, and he's saying that God is um, looking at the suffering of the believer, but he's looking through that suffering to another day. When those that are persecuting and those that are inflicting pain and those that are causing the suffering are going to be paid back. Retribution. Retribution. He says there's a day coming when that's going to happen. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. We're going to rest in that knowledge that ultimately vengeance belongs unto the Lord, right? Vengeance is mine, I shall repay. He will repay. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, with his angels of power, as it's saying, in flaming fire. Here's, here's another reference to fire. Don't, don't be afraid of the fire that burns for just a moment. But rather remember the fire that's eternal. I'm going to say more about that in just a minute. I love that story of Polycarp here. Because Polycarp uh, said uh, uh, in that uh, speech that he gave while he was being uh, tied to this stake, uh, he said, the, the flame that you inflict on me is momentary. It burns but just a little while. But the glory that I have in Christ is endless. He, he, he had the right attitude, brothers. <laughs> oh, I would that I had that kind of a faith. 
Listen to this. In flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with, listen to this, with everlasting destruction, everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Now stop right there and consider this. See, this is so unpopular today. You don't hear this kind of teaching in many places today. But brothers and sisters, hell was not a doctrine invented to scare children. Um, Hell is not a myth, but it's a geographical location that will be the eternal habitation of those that know not God and that obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a serious thing, brothers and sisters. Uh, George Whitfield said he would never preach a sermon that he did not uh, speak about the danger of hell. But he said, I would never preach about the danger of hell without tears flowing down my cheeks. It's a serious matter. You know, people make fun about going to I don't want to go to heaven. All my friends are in hell, somebody says. Uh, somebody says, yeah, they told me I'm going to die within six weeks with cancer. But I want you, everybody to know I'm not going to hell. Or, I mean, I'm not going to heaven. I'm going to hell. By the way, that was Ronald, uh, President Ronald Reagan's son. He's the president of the Atheist Association in California. Terrible, terrible statement. He's going to rue the day that he said that. But I want, I want to just, and I want you to write these down. We don't have time, of course, to go into all of these verses, but I want you to see how serious the Word of God is about this place that we refer to as hell. It's eternal death, and it's described in the Word of God as banishment. Here in Second Thessalonians 2, 9, we'll read about it as being banished. <clears throat> it's referring to the society with the devil. In Matthew chapter 25 verse 41 Jesus said that it would be a place where the devil and his angels would reside it is referred to as the lake of fire in revelation chapter 19 verse 20 it's a place where the worm never dies that's a picture of Gehenna that's a picture of this place where they would throw these dead bodies on top of the ground and the worms would eat the bodies and isn't that gross Uh, And the worm never dies there, Jesus said in Mark chapter 9, verse 44. It's a place of outer darkness, Matthew 25, verse 30. It's a place of the mist of darkness in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. It's a place of wrath and and indignation, Romans chapter 2 and verse 8. It is a place of eternal wrath being poured out upon the wicked. Revelation chapter 20, verses 14 and 15. I just want to give you those references to uh, make you understand that when Paul is writing this to the church at Thessalonica, he's not talking about a peripheral doctrine. He's talking about something very real and something uh, that you and I as Christians need to always remember that Christ came to save us from. If it weren't for the coming of Christ, that would be our home. That would be our end. So Paul never minimized the damnation of the wicked and the eternal habitation 
that they will spend apart from Christ. But notice verse 10. When, not if, children, you understand the difference between if and when. It's not if he comes again, but when. When he come, he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe because our testimony among you was believed in that day. There's, there's the calendar of Paul coming up again. He, he only had two days on his calendar. Two day and that day. That's where he lived. Between two day and that day. Paul wants to remind us tonight that suffering is a gift preparing us for future glory. Remember what the Apostle Paul said back over in the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verse 6. He said, We are confident of this very thing, that he that hath begun a good work in us shall perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. He's not going to give up on you. You might give up on him, but he's not going to give up on you. He's going to complete the work of salvation that he began in your soul when he... Uh, regenerated you by the Holy Spirit and when he brought you to a, a faith in Christ through conversion he's not going to give up on you then he's going to be with you all along your journey even to the end and he's not going to give up on you there he's going to finish that work but he said something else in Philippians chapter 1 verse 29 he says for unto you it is given in behalf of Christ not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake. Suffering as a Christian is a privilege. Suffering as a Christian is a calling. Suffering as a Christian is a gift. It's a gift from God to you. Then lastly, the third part of this chapter embraces our third point. Suffering will always precede glory. Listen to what he says. Wherefore also we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy. There's that worthiness again. Remember, not merit, but a fitness. Your fit vessels uh, for this calling and to fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. Now, beloved brethren, I want to I make this distinction real clear here. Anytime you read about work of faith, it's not, it's not calling faith a work. But he's identifying true faith as a faith that does work. Can I say that? Yes. Do you understand? Are you following me? Somebody says, well, I believe in Jesus Christ as a little boy, but, you know, I still want to go and live like the devil and live in the world and and have a lot of fun, and then maybe on the end of the of the my little journey, I might I might make some kind of a confession, and repent, and and he'll have to take me in because after all, when I was real young, I claimed a faith, and that's not true faith. I'm sorry, that's not true. That's not biblical faith. God does not save sinners by by their works but he doesn't save a sinner without giving him a faith that does work that does work 
Listen to what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2. You know this well, right? For by, gra- eight, for by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If you and I, if we only had 1% to do with our eternal salvation, just 1%, I'm telling you, as a man from Texas, we'd find a way to brag about it. We'd find a way. We'd figure it out. We'd figure out a way to brag on that 1%. But salvation is not 99% God's grace and 1% your will. It's all by God's grace. 100% by God's grace. He's the one that gives us the faith. But why does he give us the faith? Why does he regenerate us? Why does he bring us into his family? Why does he bring us under the sound of the gospel? Why? Does he do that? Here it is in uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and verses uh, 8 through 10. It is a gift of God, not of works that any man should boast for. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto what? Good works, which he hath before ordained that we should walk in them. When you talk about a worthy walk, You're talking about a fitful walk. You're talking about a walk that is consistent with the teachings of Christ. You follow me? Yeah. So the Apostle Paul is encouraging the church, reminding them that suffering will always precede uh, glory. That's what Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, one of my favorite verses. He says, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. He says, uh, he says uh, uh, this worthy calling is fulfilling the good pleasure of his goodness. And the work of faith is going to be attended by sovereign power. What I'm talking about tonight uh, is something that you can't do on your own. Polycarp couldn't do that on his own. I'm telling you, nobody, nobody can do what the early martyrs did on their own. They had to have grace to do it. There's because we uh, all are born with a desire to preserve ourselves, but there was something greater than that desire in the early Christians and in Christians today around the world. They're not willing to betray their resolution that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the Apostle Paul says, I don't want you to either. I want your faith to be the kind of faith that works for the glory of God. Not for yourself, but for the glory of God. And God said, when you're looking to him, he'll give you the power to do that. So that, verse 12, last verse, last point, so that, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in him according to the grace, you see it, the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a life where God is glorified in and through all that we strive to do. Every part of our life is under his sovereign control, under his sovereign rule. The last verse I'm going to mention here before I close tonight is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. He said, whether ye eat or drink, 
Whatever you do in your life, let everything be done to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's what Paul is teaching us tonight. Paul is teaching us, yes, Christians are going to suffer. It's a calling he's brought us to, but that suffering is going to bring growth in your life. That suffering is going to bring a great gift in your life. That suffering is going to precede the glory that shall be revealed at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Live and walk and work in, in that reality. Thank you for your good attention.